0: Particularly perplexing because it was just him on the island. Fairly crude structures, which wasn't surprising, but the interviewers wanted to know what different purposes they served. So he identified the nearest structure as his home. He highlighted how all the essentials that he needed were located in or near this home base. And then he continued pointing out that he was a Christian. And at another nearby hut was his church. Built to remind himself to be devoted to God and to keep him a priority every day. And then an interviewer spotted another structure a short ways off and asked him about that. What is that hut used for? Suddenly his tone changed and he lowered his head said, Oh, that one, that's the church I used to go to. As most of you are aware, we've been intermittently punctuating Matt's preaching series with messages from the book of James titled, True Religion. In James, we've been examining various tests or trials that reveal the genuineness of our faith. Like our shipwrecked friend, who's fictional, just to be clear, this morning's test reveals a problem that is much more personal than we often realize. But understanding this provides us a pathway to hope. So if you would, please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. The reality is that fights and quarrels are a painful, too frequent. Occurrence, reality in this fallen world. And unfortunately Christians are not immune to their presence in our lives. Our churches are not immune. This church is not immune. Our workplaces, neighborhoods are not immune neither are our own homes these places of refuge that we seek out conflict finds its way there as well I mean if we were painfully honest with ourselves who of us would have to go back more than a few days to locate a recent time when you were engaged in some type of squabble or conflict, customer service, parent and child, spouse with spouse, the with coworker, with the idiot that just cut you off, we don't have to look very far to be aware of its intruding presence into our lives. Now the last thing we read from James in chapter 3, he was urging us towards wisdom from above. And he was warning us against the wisdom promoted by the world, by our own flesh, and by the enemy, which is marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And he exhorted us to sow peace in order that we might harvest righteousness. Then we arrive at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, and James says, whoa, Not so fast. Don't move too quickly. Fights and quarrels, they aren't just an out there issue. They're actually occurring among you because of what's going on within you. And so instead of allowing us to assume that we are already experts at what he has exhorted us to in sowing peace... James confronts all of us with a reality check. Read with me, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But but he gives more grace. Will exalt you. I just want to say we've read this section because I believe it is a section together, but our focus this morning will be primarily on the first two verses of this passage our conflicts with one another. We will still have opportunity to look at the rest of this. We'll look at part B in a few weeks um, when we next look at James dealing with our enmity with God in a future message. But this morning, the main idea that we want to see, at least part A of the main idea, is that conflicts among us arise from the passions within us. Reading James can be a lot like going to the doctor. We go in with a troublesome problem an issue we'd like to resolve, some pain or discomfort or other undesirable symptom we want remedied. We go to the doctor believing he can make it go away. He'll give us a prescription that takes care of our nagging symptoms. But a good physician isn't just interested in treating the presenting problems. They ask more questions, and they run a few tests, because they want to determine and treat the underlying cause of our current discomforts. Uh, Let's be clear, no one goes to the doctor wanting to hear that they have a tumor, but if there is a tumor, you need to know about it. A doctor that gives you aspirin and tells you all is fine, instead of giving you options for eradicating a tumor he discovered, you, saw, you sue for malpractice, or your next of kin do. The physician's job isn't to tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And as we encounter James, he is a good soul physician. He begins this appointment by making an uncomfortable observation. There are quarrels and fights among you. Again, he's writing to believers. And This is where this becomes particularly relevant to us when we realize James wasn't referring to an isolated incident. This wasn't like Paul just writing to the church at Corinth about their particular issues. He was writing to people that were scattered. Scattered after the persecution that arose in Jerusalem. It's important to remember that he isn't writing to a particular church in a single location, but he was writing to those that were scattered Scattered about Judea. He isn't addressing a singular situation here, but a reality common even among God's people. No matter how much we wish it weren't the case, until we are all glorified, fights and quarrels will continue to test us, to be trials. In our lives. Now, the test isn't whether or not there are disputes and conflicts, which personally, I find that to be a bit of a relief to realize that a Christian home is not one that is utterly absent from conflict, because I'm aware that would exclude ours. But the test is how we deal with such conflicts, such quarrels and fights. And that begins with recognizing its true nature. Like a faithful physician, James takes the painfully presenting symptoms, the problem of fights and quarrels among believers and says, just so you know, the cause is different than what you probably think you think that your feud is annoying because God allowed some jerk to be your boss he didn't eliminate that in his grand plan or to come into your care group or somehow for some reason he allowed that person to marry you or be born into your family. But Dr. James tells us the necessary surgery isn't to have that person cut out of our life. The remedy involves a much more personal incision. Because conflict among us arises from the passions within us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, he says? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Friends, the relevance of this book generally and this passage specifically, is greater than the sum of the evening news, your Facebook feed, anything that's trending on Twitter or Instagram as we're sitting here. Because this provides insight and help for every human relationship. What James asserts is true for an international diplomat, seeking to avert a world crisis and for the kids in daycare pulling each other's hair it includes the hostility with the new boss at work and the simmering tension between the couple celebrating their 40th anniversary for Any who would listen, irregardless of age, education, or setting, James provides for us clarity. And if we are willing to listen and allow the Holy Spirit to perform surgery on our hearts, this insight has the ability to transform our relationships. From personal experience, I don't know a passage that has been more helpful for our marriage than this one. Especially on non-marriage topics. This has made a huge impact for us. Now, that, that doesn't mean that by any means there aren't conflicts or that we're perfect in practice. But I will say it has reset our minds and helped us to think differently at least when we recall these things. Whenever we fight and quarrel and argue with someone else, our focus automatically locks on to whatever it is they need to change in order to resolve this impasse. I mean, can you think of the last time you were in an argument and your first thought was, I'm probably off base here. No, we're in an argument because we're convinced we're right. We're convinced they're stupid, immoral, something. We're convinced of those two things. Automatically, we lock on to whatever it is they need to change. They need to change what they're doing because they know it bothers me. They need to change their mind because the facts obviously favor my position. They need to change their attitude because clearly any reasonable individual would see this the way that I do. They need to change their morality because they are absolutely in the wrong. But James calls us to look a little closer to home is it not this he says that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain So you fight and quarrel. Conflict always starts as an inside job. We've been betrayed from inside. One author writes, all our desires and passions are like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our hearts. Why are there fights and quarrels among us? Simple. Because we want something and we aren't getting it. Full stop. Mystery solved. You desire and do not have, so you murder. These are strong words. That's not saying that that's where every desire leads to, but unchecked. If we pursue it at the expense of all else, it's where it can lead to. Covet, position or a possession or a person and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. His language here runs from a verbal argument to physical violence and even to murder, all flowing from the unmet desires of our hearts. Now, I'm aware. Battle for you may not involve harsh words, physical violence, deadly force, or other conventional means of warfare. For you, it might not even mean raising your voice. Different personalities and relationships engage in conflict in different ways. Yours might be a cold war of measured concessions and strict boundary lines. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that That is allowing the peace of God to reign. Or the self-sacrificing love of Christ to rule your relationship. You've just chosen to pursue your desires through distance. Demilitarized zones and strategic sniper fire rather than ongoing open hostilities. Perhaps always reserving the nuclear option if the other person ever crosses the wrong line. My heart can't be the problem, we protest. What I want isn't a bad thing. All I want is for my spouse to love me. All I want is for my kids to respect me. All I want is for the people in this house to not destroy this house. Is that so much to ask? All I want is for my boss to recognize what I deserve. I just, I just want us to spend more time together. Why wouldn't he want that too? I just need her to not be wasteful with the little we have right now. Why can't she see that? James isn't saying that our passions and desires themselves are evil. Many are morally neutral. Many can even be good. Now, clearly, Scripture does reveal lusts and desires that are in themselves sinful. But among believers seeking to honor God, we should expect to often have good and righteous desires. But friends, even righteous desires can become evil when we prioritize them above the people we are called to love. A single-minded pursuit of my cravings and desires has me view those around me either as vehicles to get what I want or obstacles in the way of getting what I want. My desire for my kids to get along is a good desire. When I crave that so much that I get angry and start yelling, the moment I detect them not getting along, the passions within me have sent me running to battle stations. The moment I don't get what I want and Probably, if I look a little deeper, that's because it's also tied, connected with other desires I have, like peace, quiet, convenience, my desire for kids that don't require effort to parent. And so I get upset when I don't get what I want. The evil... Doesn't necessarily lie in what I want in those cases, but my wanting it too much. Wanting it at the expense of our relationship. It's not hard or unusual for me to turn legitimate desire for affection or peace or convenience, or comfort, some area of control, into a craving that won't rest until I've obtained it. And from there, I elevate it to a need, or a right, which justifies me when I demand it from you. Or I keep a log of offense for those times that you don't deliver it to me. Good desires turn sour when they come at the expense of loving my neighbor. Two people with totally legitimate, reasonable desires will fight every time they hold on to those desires. Unreasonably. The problem is we aren't very good at recognizing where that line is. Why? Because I want this. Our cravings blind us, not unlike the log and speck Jesus talked about. A good desire becomes a ruling or sinful desire whenever we're willing to sin in our pursuit of it. My willingness to get angry or to mock to get impatient or violent or belittling or to become distant means that I have elevated loving my want above loving my neighbor, loving my child, loving my spouse. And my blindness and propensity for self-deception will work to both spiritualize and justify my desires while at the same time demonizing others' desires and motives. Because I don't see how we can both want something right and good that are different things. And I know my desire is righteous. When i holding on to it like this... If I wasn't convinced of that, therefore, your desire must be evil. And if I follow the extension, you must be evil because you're keeping me from a good thing. And instead of talking with one another, instead of asking questions, seeking to understand each other's desires and aims, we jump to conclusions... We assume motives, predetermine who the good guys and bad guys are. It's kind of funny how in our stories, it's always everyone else that's the bad guy. Especially when we consider that we're the only constant in all of our conflicts. The other people are just supporting players. We're the one that's there in every one of them. Just a little food for thought from the book of James. Instead of acknowledging that the conflict among us arises from the passions within us, we're more prone to try and resolve an issue by going after surface symptoms, presenting problems, present present unpleasantness. When we do, we Often stop at a superficial piece, or perhaps just as often find our attempts to resolve a conflict end up escalating it because we haven't recognized what we actually want or the legitimate things that the other person may desire. So everything is just a new battleground. We need to see that conflict among us always arises from the passions within us and until we acknowledge our own contribution to a quarrel and the fact that we have elevated our love for our want above our love for the other person we won't find true peace now James isn't saying that there aren't other forces that influence our relationships. I mean, it was only four verses ago that he highlighted the influence of the enemy and the world in addition to our flesh. But rooting conflict in our passions, he reminds us that those outside factors never actually determine our response. Even another person's sinful actions against me they're never an excuse for my own sin. I don't get a pass because you started it. Now, If God operated that way, there would be no cross, no Calvary, no hope of forgiveness. Friends, we have been called to a higher calling. Your sin towards me does not require me to sin in return. And ultimately, the influence of the world, the enemy, the sins of another person, they'll always be limited to the foothold I give them in my heart. They are not determinative. This is where genuine hope can be realized in our relationships. If we get a hold of this reality because I'm not captive to whether or not you are willing to change before I can see God at work in our relationship. The reality is I will largely be blind to any change in you As long as I refuse to acknowledge how I have loved my comfort or my convenience, my desires for attention or respect or affection or security or affirmation or to be seen as right, my love for possessions or position or control more than I have loved you when I start to acknowledge and repent of my contributions to a quarrel, God starts to transform me and our relationship. That getting going isn't dependent upon the other person. Now, yes, God needs to work in both to have Total transformation, but not to begin. Now don't confuse something being simple with it being easy. I think James serves us extremely well by revealing for us how clear the roots of conflict are. We don't get what we want, so we go to battle in order to obtain it Or to punish someone who has withheld it from us. But seeing the truth and living differently are two totally separate things. These two verses are hard, not because they are unclear, but because they are very clear the decision to love each other more than our wants is no small task. So how does conflict among us, arising from the passions within us, provide hope? Because, James says, humility from us is met with grace for us. That's part B of our main idea. Read with me again verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Rather than allow us to be self-deceived and think we are victims of circumstance, or simply innocent bystanders to quarrels and conflicts. James wants us to be convinced of our contribution and convicted by our sin, not to make us miserable, but because that alone is the path that leads to reconciliation and the exceedingly generous grace of God. James declares boldly, God gives more grace. Grace not not just for past forgiveness. Grace not, not just for our eternal future, but grace for the messiness of right now. Grace for today and for this relationship. Grace, not to serve my wants and pride, but grace to resist the devil and grace to draw near to God. Grace to be cleansed. Grace that flows to me as I humble myself. God promises We need to hear this. God promises to resist us in our pride. And when we're in the midst of argument, fighting, be assured we are there because of our Since we are right, we're fighting for what we desire, and God has vowed to oppose us in our pride. My attempts to seize my wants and needs and rights by my own wisdom and efforts at the expense of those around me. But as I see my sin, as I confess my sin and turn from my sin in humility, he gives more grace. How marvelous the other half of that promise. He gives grace to the humble. Oh, we naturally are proud, but we don't have to stay there. And humility is not just expressed toward God, but towards one another as well. Again, an area where we need His grace. Jesus addresses fights and quarrels in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24. Sermon on the Mount, he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I'm really glad he doesn't stop there. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, it's important for us to see, to realize the altar is where sacrifices were offered for sins. This was the physical location, the Old Testament law, where forgiveness was realized. Bring our sin offering, give it to the priests, it's sacrificed and burnt. It's a reminder that our sins aren't free. They need to have payment made. And what's striking is that Jesus is saying that reconciling with one another is a priority. even part of the process to asking forgiveness from God. Leave your gift. First, leave your gift. Go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. We don't make sacrifices at the altar anymore for our sins because Jesus was sacrificed once for all for us. And we can be reconciled with one another because in Jesus God has reconciled us to himself. Which is a much greater reconciliation and that's part of what we'll look at next time, this enmity with God. But our means of restoration are the same. It's to humble ourselves. To see our own sin. Where we're able to go to one another, to make that right. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because he does, we have hope. Hope for our relationships. I hope you're not currently in conflict. If you're not, celebrate that, but be aware. It's just a matter of time. Because we're still in our stories. We still have passions and desires that we misplace the priority of. We value our wants above one another all the time until he makes us like him it's going to continue to be a struggle where he has revealed that to you where you are in conflict well we know what we must do it calls upon us to begin to humble ourselves where we can to go to the other to acknowledge our part And see what God might do to restore and reconcile a relationship. Even to make it better than before. Because it's built on a gospel foundation. One that isn't contingent on everything being perfect between us. But one recognizing we have a foundation than us walking on eggshells all the time. We have a foundation where we can realize the amazing forgiveness and grace of God that I can realize how wonderful that is in my own life and I can extend that to you as well now there's something that can support a relationship because hoping we don't have any waves any trouble along the way boy that's a really tentative way to relate with one another. We, we don't have to try to make waves and take each other off. It'll happen naturally. But when we do, we have a means because we have a God who gives more grace and can support the relationships that he has given to us. Conflict among us arises from the passions within us, but humility from us is met with grace for us. Let's pray and thank him for the grace that is for us. And if the band would please come. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you.